0: Please turn to the book of Romans, we'll begin the book of Romans, the way that uh, we have scheduled this is two lessons per chapter in the book of Romans is the schedule, two lessons per chapter. So you can do the math, 16 chapters in the book of Romans, two lessons per chapter. All of you math whizzes, uh, how long will this take? Thirty-two weeks. There you go. Yeah. Why has Romans been so important throughout church history? That's a that's a question. Yeah. Okay. Full explanation, the theology. Yeah. I mean, it radically changed theology. Yeah, the reformers were reading it, changed and impacted them, and led to the, the reformation of the church, right? Yeah, absolutely. The inclusion of Gentiles in God's people, absolutely. Paul's magnum opus, yeah, yeah. It's so important because the exposition of theology in terms of salvation and sanctification is so clear in the book of Romans. And because of the clarity of the book of Romans, it's so important not to, in a sense, elevate it as more inspired than other books of scripture, for we hold that all scripture is inspired by God, but Romans has a a, a purpose in the providence of God in which it is particularly useful in expounding to us the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of justification, salvation by faith. So let's look at some of the background Uh, some introductory material that will help us orient ourselves to this important epistle. Let's look at the background to Romans. The church in Rome is not a church that was founded by the Apostle Paul. It was founded by Jews and proselytes. So Paul, nor a member of his team, was a founding member of the Church of Rome. And it's important historically to situate what's happening. So at the time, Nero is Caesar in Rome, and he had ordered the Jews in AD 49 to leave Rome, leaving the church or probably churches in Rome to become dominated by Gentile Christians. We see this reflected in Acts 18, verse 2. There's a reference to that the expulsion of the jews from rome we see that there um claudius that's a reference to nero had commanded all the jews to leave rome but in A.D. 54 nero dies causing the order to lapse and many jews returned back to rome which likely strained the relationships uh in this church so here you so just Think about this in your mind you have these churches this early church um some 20 years maybe after the ascension of christ not much time and the jews are ordered by caesar uh nero to to leave rome and so the church becomes dominated by gentile christians and then nero dies and they come back and what do you think it may have done with those churches that were in rome What do you think they struggled with that's not the way we worship right yeah 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 and you can imagine the gentile christian saying excuse me right sure any other thoughts Could be, could be. Yeah. Some friction. Who's in charge? Who gets to decide these matters? Who gets to say? How are Gentile Christians included in the body of Christ? What do they need to do in order to be Christians? It's clear for the Jewish Christians But what about Gentile Christians? Who gets to decide and who gets to say? Important matters, indeed. Paul authors Romans, probably in AD 58, and look, depending on how many commentaries you read, you can find as many different opinions on AD 54, AD 58. I just picked one out of a hat and went with AD 58, okay? If you have a better date, that's fine. Uh, Paul is the author. We see this clearly in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And a man by the name Tertius is the amanuensis. In the ancient world, parchment, which was their papyrus and parchment, was expensive. Paper was very, very expensive. There's no computers. There's no typewriters. There's no whiteout. Okay, so you make an error in writing a letter, particularly something as long as Romans, and guess what? That can be a costly error. And so one of the ways that the ancient world did this is that they would employ the services of an amanuensis, someone who was a professional writer, you might say. So when we talk about Paul being the writer. Who wrote the book of Romans? Don't stone me for this. It's not Paul. Because Tertius identifies himself in chapter 16 as the one who wrote the letter. that, When we're talking about writing, what we really mean is authorship. Paul is the author of the book of Romans. Tertius is the writer of the book of Romans. And occasionally, and I like the ending of the book of Galatians because you'll see Paul was using an amanuensis in the epistle of Galatians and then he gets to the end and apparently he picks up the pen and begins to write himself because he says, see what large letters I write with my own hand. You can read that in Galatians 6. It's one of the reasons that we think that Paul had vision problems and you can imagine that, right? If you have this beautiful handwriting that someone has and then all of a sudden you have this guy who's half blind and you can see clearly someone else took the pen and started writing the letter right here and so an amanuensis was a common way of getting a letter out to someone and we think that perhaps Phoebe the deaconess and I know some of you may be shocked by that she's called deaconess in Romans 16 and you have to wrestle with what you mean by deaconess and I'll probably draw the short end of the stick on Romans 16 1 and uh, be teaching on that when the time comes but uh, Phoebe is probably the courier of this letter she's probably the one carrying this epistle on behalf of Paul bringing it to the church in Rome and some people think even the one to explain uh, what Paul was saying here. We can have that discussion later on. Uh, today is not the time or the place, but I don't change my doctrine of ordination just because of Romans 16.1. Okay? Paul wanted to visit Rome. That's pretty clear. We'll see that here in a moment. Paul wanted to visit Rome to preach the gospel, and then travel from there to Spain but first he needed to travel to Jerusalem and he's he's doing a collection he's 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 getting together a collection from from several churches and we read about this in Corinthians where he's getting together uh, a collection for the church in Jerusalem and so before he goes to Spain before he goes to Spain and stops off in Rome on his way to Spain He needs to stop off in Jerusalem to deliver this collection that he has been getting from different churches for the church in Jerusalem. While he's there, he becomes arrested. Plans change. Paul never makes it to Spain. He does make it to Rome, but he doesn't make it to Rome to uh, preach the gospel, as we might say. He arrives to Rome as a prisoner. And no doubt he is still preaching and declaring the gospel, just not in the manner in which he had planned. And and as far as we know from church history, Paul dies in Rome as a martyr somewhere around A.D. sixty two or, or sixty four, perhaps by being beheaded. What is the reason for Paul's epistle to the Romans? As many people as you ask will probably be as many answers as you get. But judging from the context here, I think that we can look Romans 15:15 15, 15 through 16 and get a good idea. Paul uh, says here, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So it appears here that Paul's purpose in authoring Romans, we might say it's evangelistic. It's there's a missionary thrust behind Romans where he is wanting to engage the church in Rome or the churches in Rome in partnership in the ministry, that he wants to go to Spain as a, minister, as, a, as a missionary to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in Spain. And so part of the reason for his writing Romans, not only to resolve the issue between Jewish and Gentile Christians, but it's to engage the church as partners with him in their support of him through prayer and maybe through finances as well, um, that they would support him in his gospel ministry, in his mission to Spain. So he's been delayed arriving to them in person, and so he makes this appeal by epistle because he's been providentially hindered. There's some interesting rhetorical features in the book of Romans. Paul is masterful here. He uses a dialogue partner at certain places. He uh, uses internal dialogue where he's asking and answering questions speech and character and he's also uses a, a variety of other uh, creedal statements hymns scripture quotations uh, Paul is masterful in the book of Romans um, I'm not brave enough to preach through it yet uh, give me another 20 years and maybe I'll be ready to preach through Romans I'm not brave enough to do it yet. Uh, simple outline, just a, just a, an easy lay of the land here, and one day when Jonathan stands for his ordination exams, he'll be asked, Jonathan, give us an outline for the book of Romans. You'll have to do it, Jonathan. I'm, maybe I'm prophesying that to you. Every ordinate has to do it, okay? They all get asked. Give us an outline of the book of Genesis and give us an outline of the book of Romans. A simple outline for the book of Romans is 1 through 11, righteousness from God, and 12 through 16, righteousness in practice. And we're just emphasizing the point here that at chapter 12, Paul moves from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. He he places his doctrinal teaching into practice for the church. And so we kind of see these two big blocks of material in the book of Romans, 1 through 11, and then 12 through 16. All right, so Paul's never been to Rome, not as a missionary anyway. He didn't found the church. He'd never personally met these Christians. Why would Paul need to introduce himself then? Now we're gonna deal with the text in Paul's introduction, Paul's greeting. Why would Paul need to introduce himself? Authority, yeah, absolutely. What else? It's personal care for the church. What's that, John? He's invested in them as Christians, even though he hasn't been there. That doesn't diminish Paul's care and concern and uh, the way that he views the church Catholic, or we might say the big church. Right? Um, He he is recognizing that they're part of the same family of God. Sure. What else? Yeah. Paul himself being a Jewish Christian. Having a, a love for the Jewish people. Sure. What else? His credentials. Yeah, yeah. Who are you to tell us these things? And Paul's going to take the time to introduce himself and he's not going to take it for granted, right? He's not the church planter there. Now, to some of the other churches, you know, when you read Galatians, it's, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's like, uh, wait a minute, who are you, Paul, right? He, he skips the formalities in the book of Galatians. They know him, you might say, but that's not the case for Romans, and he takes the time to introduce himself. So let's look at Paul's greeting Beginning in uh, Romans 1, verse 1. Who is Paul? Well, he identifies himself in two ways. He calls himself first. What does he call himself? Look at it there in verse 1. What is he? A servant of Christ Jesus. The word in Greek is doulos. You could translate that slave. Paul, slave of Christ Jesus. Jesus. Servant of Christ Jesus. It's a humble way for Paul to begin his epistle, isn't it? Identifying himself not with Paul, rightful bishop of the church in Rome. Paul. Slave of Christ Jesus. In this way, Paul is aligning himself with the other servants of Yahweh that we see in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 9 7 we see there you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my what? Servants the prophets and the blood of all the what? Servants of the Lord Ezra 9 10 and 11 for we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your what? Servants the prophets Daniel 9 6 Daniel's prayer, we have not listened to your what? Servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. So Paul's identifying himself in a long, rich Old Testament tradition as a servant of God. One who is functioning in an office similar to a prophet. And what we mean by that is... He's not foretelling the future. Now, the Old Testament prophets, they do some of that. But if you remember our Old Testament survey, I made the case that the Old Testament prophets, they don't do nearly as much foretelling as they do forthtelling. They are God's covenant enforcers. They're like attorneys is what they are. They're enforcing God's law instructing people in God's law, telling people how they violated God's law and how they are to obey God's law. And if they don't, they will come under the judgment of God's law. And if they do, they will come under the blessing of God's law. Paul's identifying himself in that rich tradition in Old Testament history, calling himself Paul a servant of Christ Jesus. What's the second way he identifies himself? Apostle, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's identifying himself along with the other disciples of Jesus. Consider Luke 6, 13. And when day came, he, that being Jesus, called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named what? apostles that's right Paul identifies himself in Galatians 1 as an apostle not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father so he's a witness of the resurrected Christ isn't he the road to Damascus he has a vision of the risen Christ glorified and Paul is converted on the road to Damascus and so in this way He's, he has this authority like the other apostles do. So, just as the, John the Beloved writes with great authority as an apostle, so too Paul writes with great authority. Well, what is this gospel that Paul has been set apart to? What is this gospel that he preaches? Let's look at that. Well, first we need to know that this gospel has a divine origin. This isn't something that Paul has made up on his own. This isn't just a story that Paul's fabricated. This isn't theology that Paul has invented. This is good news from whom? Well, it's good news from God. He's set apart for the gospel of God. It's not the gospel of Paul. It's the gospel of God. There is a divine origin here. In verse 2... He explains that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this gospel is not something new to the New Testament church, Paul's saying here. This is all part of God's redemptive plan that he has been speaking about for a long time throughout the Old Testament. Right? This is not new for them. This is part and parcel to God's plan already revealed through the prophets let's look as well regarding the gospel it has a content doesn't it the content of the gospel is the birth death and resurrection of jesus the god man let's look at this tightly wound explanation here of that concerning his son notice the divine origin second person of the godhead Jesus is God's son, right? So he's divine. He is God concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So here we have a reference to the incarnation as a fulfillment of Old Testament promises from God. We think about 2 Samuel chapter 7. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, here in one statement, we have a reference to God taking on flesh in fulfillment of his promises, being incarnated, giving of himself to die, and being resurrected, and ascending to David's rightful throne in heaven. Isn't that awesome? statement here, right? So notice the, notice the contrast, son of David and son of God, Second Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. Notice again the contrast, born of David, he's David's son in that way, but also declared son of God by his resurrection and ascension. According to the flesh and according to the spirit, I think it's a reference to the incarnation and deity of Jesus, Him, his two natures here. Commentators disagree with some of them, commentators disagree, that's fine. They can disagree. But that's what I think it's a reference to here, that this is who Jesus is. He is the God-man, right? He has come in the flesh. Well, who is this gospel for? It is for all nations not just for Jews. Verse 5, and the gospel is received by faith and changes a person's obedience. So notice that here in verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith, right? So the gospel, it changes a person, making them a disciple of Christ. And the goal of all this is to bring glory to to Jesus. As we see here in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So this is the motivating factor for Paul. This is why he's doing everything is the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you do how do you unite ethnically diverse Christians? Let's deal with that question for a moment. How do you unite ethnically diverse Christians? God created all men and women, absolutely. We're all fellow image bearers. What else? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, so identifying others as fellow image bearers and also uniting around what you have in common in Christ. And I think that's what Paul's doing here in verse 7 as he turns his address to them. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This includes the two groups. They're both loved by God and they're both called to be saints. They are those who are set apart. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This father language, it implies a covenantal relationship. He's using the covenantal language here that we see in Exodus 4 and Isaiah 1, Hosea 11, other places that describes Israel and God in a father-son kind of relationship. And so here we We see here in Romans 1, Paul is taking that language and he's applying that not just to Jewish Christians, but he's also applying that to Gentile Christians, so that the true church is a church that is spiritual. It's not just an ethnic church. It's a spiritual church. It's one of the reasons why we're not dispensationalists. We don't think there are two churches. There's one church. And it's language like this that we see in Romans 1 where Paul is taking covenantal language from the Old Testament and applying it to Gentile Christians. God's your father too. You are a saint in him too. You've been reconciled to him too. And that's how Paul is uniting them. Let's look at Paul's prayer In verses 8 through 15. Notice the bookends. Look here at uh, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Then look at verse 15. I'm eager to do what? Preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So notice the bookends. A faith proclaimed and a gospel preached. Paul, in this prayer, explains that he's been providentially hindered from coming to them. He wants them to know, I've been praying for you unceasingly, but yet, I've been hindered from coming to you, and I've been praying that God might allow me to come to you, so that I can impart to you a spiritual gift and be mutually edified by your faith. How do we reconcile human planning and God's providence? Yeah, yeah. Let go and let God. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah, so Paul's making plans. His plans have been providentially hindered, but in the meantime, what does Paul keep doing? He keeps praying. Yeah, just because he's been hindered from coming to them doesn't mean that Paul just says, well, sorry, you're out of luck, not going to be able to come to you. No, Paul continues to remain steadfast in prayer. He keeps praying and petitioning and asking the Lord to allow him to go to them. And God answers his prayers, doesn't he? Just not in the way that Paul thought the prayer would be answered. He goes to Rome in chains and ends his life there. Paul desires to impart to them a spiritual gift to make them strong, Some people think, and I think this is a terrible translation or a terrible understanding of verse 11. Some people think that Paul wants to impart to them some supernatural gift like what you hear of like impartation in charismatic churches, right? Like I'm gonna lay hands on you and impart an anointing to you. That's not what Paul means here. Paul is wanting to impart to them his understanding of the gospel. That is what he's wanting to share with them. And this would seem to fit best with the context of the book of Romans as well. Paul has an obligation to do this both to Greeks and to barbarians. Who, who are the two groups here? Look at verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The Greeks are those who are entrenched in Greek culture, right? They speak Greek, they've been Hellenized, but Paul's not just a missionary to them, to the Greeks, who, who else is he a missionary to? Those who are not Greek, those who are not Greek and those who are not Jewish, but those who are what? Barbarians, the foolish. Paul has an obligation to preach the gospel to them too. Let's look at Paul's thesis statement in verses 16 and 17. And here's where we'll spend the rest of our time and I hope to confuse you greatly and answer none of your questions. Verses 16 and 17 appear to be Paul's thesis statement for the entire book of Romans. Paul says here, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Colin Cruz in his commentary, he identifies this as the thesis statement. Paul is laying out here doctrine that he's going to explain and defend in the rest of of the epistle, there might be one among our number who does not think that this is Paul's thesis statement. He'll have a chance to get up and teach later on, but he's not here this morning to make his his claims. So he has no voice here. Travis is out of luck this morning. The gospel—it does make sense. It will indeed appear as folly to those who are perishing, won't it? It will appear as unwise and foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 1. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul's saying here, I'm not ashamed of what the gospel does. I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed to be identified with the gospel. I'm not ashamed to be identified with Jesus. I'm not ashamed to be a servant of Jesus. And I'm not ashamed to be an apostle of Jesus. I'm not ashamed to declare this gospel to you, even though those who are quote-unquote wise among you might think that the gospel is foolishness. It is not, Paul says. Why is it not foolishness? It's the only means of salvation. It's the only power that can bring a person from death to life. Only in the gospel do you receive the declaration that one is one has been justified by faith through grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says here, he's not ashamed of the gospel, why? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not just a selected few, not just for Gentile Christians, not just for Jewish Christians, not just for Greeks, not just for barbarians not just for the wise and not just for the foolish you have those two categories right in your mind clearly in your mind but the gospel is for who everyone who believes oh there's believing involved there's an identifying factor involved it's those who believe but whoever whoever believes will be saved that's what Paul's saying here To the Jew first and also to the Greek. What does this mean? To the Jew first. Well, through whom were these promises made originally? Through the Jews. So Paul counts that to them in their credit. Right? These promises, they came through you. The Messiah came. He's the Messiah's Jew. Son of David. Jewish promises. New Covenant, Jewish promises, right? These are all Jewish promises that God's revealing himself through a select group of people. But for what purpose? So that all may be saved. Proclaimed to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And lest they think they have some sort of advantage, Paul will... Conclude that the Jews in chapter 2 are really no better off than the Gentiles. For they're both outside of God's grace if they're outside of God's grace. You don't get in ethnically. Paul will make that case very, very soon. And the Jews have a greater responsibility. He also says in Romans, what is it, 3, that judgment is comes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, right? So there's a greater level of accountability that Paul is saying. Sure, you receive the promises because you receive the word of God and the law, but now you're you're in a category of heightened responsibility because you rejected the Messiah. He was your Messiah, and you rejected him, and you killed him. You crucified him. This was the pattern of Paul's ministry. When you go back and you study the book of Acts, Paul would often go to Jewish synagogues to preach first. Then he'd be rejected, and then he'd go to the Gentiles to preach. And in fact, Paul does this. Why does he do this? To make Jewish people jealous. He says that, right? God's doing this to make Jewish people jealous so that they'll come to the Messiah. That's why he's doing this. Well, let's look at the righteousness of God. I'll, we'll ask Jonathan to put his Greek grammar hat on here. It'll make your brain hurt, Jonathan. Righteousness of God. Righteousness is a genitive in the Greek. Is it a genitive of source or origin, a possessive genitive, or a subjective genitive? genitive. Is this righteousness given that comes from God? Is this righteousness that is possessed by God as an attribute? Or is it the righteousness of God revealed through his actions in salvation? Some of you are just shaking your head going, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Greek grammar you have to make your case. It could, it could be all three. So you... I don't know. Spin the wheel. Take your pick here. Is it a both and option? Furthermore, Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in this passage. This righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What do you mean by faith from faith to faith? It begins with faith and it ends with faith and it is written the righteous shall live by faith there's much debate on how to translate this from habakkuk 2 4. much debate do you translate it as you probably have a footnote in your bible the one who by faith is righteous shall live so is paul referring to here A doctrine of sanctification or justification now we'll disagree with the new perspective on paul people we affirm forensic justification it is a declaration of god that one has been made in right standing with god covenant keeping doesn't make you righteous the question is what doctrine is being taught here in paul's thesis statement is it sanctification or justification or both? And how do you understand the righteous shall live by faith? Does it, does it mean that one is made righteous through faith? Is that what we're looking at here? How God takes unrighteous people and through the blood of Jesus makes them righteous? Or is Paul referring here to how righteous people live? That they live in faith and finish In faith. The best commentators I can find say, "Mm -hmm." mm-hmm. They'll deal with all the best commentators they can find and then they'll conclude, "Mm mm-hmm. So I don't know that it's an either-or but a both-and and there might be one among our number who has a stronger feeling about this. He's not teaching the class today. He'll get his opportunity later on to make his case. Um, I hold it with an open hand. I don't have a view on this just yet. Um, It's tough. It's it's tough to know. Uh, I lean more towards this being a reference to the way that God makes unrighteous people just. Alright, I do have a view. That's my view. Because Paul will immediately go into, in verse 18, speaking about those who are unrighteous, both Gentiles and Jews are unrighteous and God makes them righteous through faith. I see this being the way that Paul uses it in Galatians 3 when he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 that Abraham is justified by faith and he uses Habakkuk 2.4 as support for that in Galatians chapter 3. So that's what I think Paul means here. Um, Which doctrine is being taught? We affirm them both, don't we? The question is, which is being taught here? And that's something that you'll have to wrestle with as you study the book of Romans. Any questions or comments? I think it does. That, that I base my opinion on that, that Paul's making a contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous how they become righteous. It's talking about what? Christian faith. faith. Mhm. As compared as compared to those who are not righteous and live sinfully? I don't know. I don't know. The, the debates will rage on. Yeah, yeah. You know, so some will say right doctrine, wrong text. And people on both sides are saying that to each other. Right doctrine, wrong text. Could be? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what everybody does, pretty much. Yeah both are true and perhaps both are being taught in this text could be could be yeah yeah what he who teaches the lesson gets to set these sorts of terms yes yeah yeah let's pray Lord, we thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for the great mysteries of your word. Uh, Help us to grow in our understanding of your word. May it be effectual to our hearts by your spirit, applying your word to our hearts, and may it lead us to greater worship of you. Be with us now as we turn our attention to worshiping you with your people. Enable us to do so in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.